Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I think we are ready to get going this morning. Um, thanks for coming in. Does anybody have any musical skills who would like to provide some background music for us as I teach? If not, we can at least get somebody on the drums to do an occasional rim shot for any humor that is here, which that would be the only joke. Thanks for laughing, Dwayne. Let's pray together, and then we'll get, we'll get into today's subject. Father, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to, to look at history again and see your good hand working through your people um, for the good of their neighbors and for the blessing of your world. And Lord, we, we thank you for the presence of the Church of Jesus Christ, your spirit uh, indwelt and empowered people who have um, made a, a demonstrative difference by your grace in this world. Um, over the last two centuries. Christ has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we thank you that we're here this morning as a testimony to that reality. And we pray that you would bless all your churches as they gather today um, under your word. And we pray that you would build up your body and strengthen it and, and use it for greater effectiveness even in our own generation to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our topic this morning is work. Everybody's favorite topic on a Sunday, right? I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. That is an unfortunate view of work, but one that can often characterize our thinking about work because work is in a fallen world and we struggle with it and we recognize that we uh, do not work under the conditions that Adam worked under pre-fall and Eve worked under pre-fall. Um, but I hope that today's topic will encourage you that the other six days that you are engaged in labor are really, really meaningful, whether that labor is in the home, outside of the home, or a combination of the two, or you're in kind of post uh, full-time work mode and kind of semi-retirement or full retirement. I want, I, want, I want us to think biblically about work. So some of this will be a little bit of a refresher, but I hope to give us enough uh, kind of fresh thinking on it that I hope will encourage you um, this morning. So let's get into the topic. We're going we're gonna to talk about work under four kind of big categories, and then I'm going to give us a, an illustration from church history for each one of those particular categories, kind of share a brief story, brief snapshot of, of, of what we see of God's work through humans' work in the world. So first of all, let's talk about work display. Um, when, when, we, when we start with the topic of work, it's easy to start with the topic of work. What I mean is we talk about what we do, Right? Um, but that's not where the Bible starts with the topic of work, right? The Bible starts with God as a worker. And I think that's really significant for our understanding of work. Because if we don't start with God as a worker, we'll, we'll misapply or misunderstand our role as workers. So before we get into our design for work, we're going to talk about God's display of work in creation. Remember Genesis 1, 31. I won't review the whole chapter it's at least the chapter we read the most. I think it's safe to say that Christians throughout history have probably read Genesis 1 the most. The only reason, at least Christians in our particular hemisphere, because we at least know we're going to get through that far in our Bible reading plan, right? It's, it's January 1, and at least we'll get through Genesis 1. So perhaps some of you have read Genesis 1 tens of thousands of times, not because there's tens of thousands of years that you've lived, but just because you've just recommitted and recommitted and reread that chapter. But it is a good chapter to read and reread. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made. This is the conclusion of chapter 1, and it was very good. 
And then chapter 2 begins, On the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Notice, three times. All that he had made, verse 31. Verse 2. He, he rested, for, he'd finished the work he had been doing. And then verse 3, all the work of creating that he had done. So there's this, there's this emphasis in Genesis 1. And this is what Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to take away from chapter 1. God was busy. God was working. God finished everything he had set out to do. God got up that morning, so to speak, figuratively speaking, and went to bed that night with a full day's work. And we know he did it in six days. But nonetheless, he was working, he was creating, he was making. That was what we see in Genesis 1, is God as a great worker. So the God who works. The fundamental biblical fact about God is that God works. We may take that perception for granted, but in fact it contrasts starkly with the view of the gods prevalent in many religions. In fact, in the ancient Roman world, the ancient Greek world, the gods were viewed at leisure. You remember your ancient Greek myths? They, they would, they're resting. The truly great gods, they never move a finger. They have everybody serve them. Well, while we do get that vision in Isaiah 6 of the cherubim and seraphim proclaiming and serving the Lord at his will, we also see God actively involved. While he's sitting on his throne, he is working from his throne. For the ancient Greeks, for instance, ordinary work was beneath a true citizen because they were worshiping gods who saw it as beneath them. So it was an indignity to impose the burden of manual labor or household tasks on someone who wasn't a slave. And the gods, too, were viewed as living a life of unencum unencumbered by labor in blissful rest. The attitude expressed in Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat is well known. I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. That's kind of what the Greek gods were doing and the Greeks who followed them we're doing, at least if they could afford to do it. So as we move on here, we're going to get into not only looking at the God who works, but also seeing something of, if I go here, don't stop on me now. There we go. Um, in the first chapter of the Bible, we meet a God who is active in a creative and orderly fashioning, producing what is useful and beautiful, giving existence to all that had been conceived in the divine plan. And I want you to think of that as a paradigm for our work. We are active, just like God, in a creative and orderly fashion, whatever we're doing, producing what is useful and beautiful and giving existence to all that had been conceived in God's plan. And actually the term rendered work in Genesis 1 and 2 focuses on the skill that produces something beautiful and beneficial to the world. And that's what all biblical work is. It's using our skills to produce something beautiful and beneficial. Now, that doesn't mean we're actually making something like a table, or, but it could be the gentle, quiet work, ongoing work of a mom who's seeking to produce beautiful and beneficial children for the world over the long haul, right? Or, um, you know, my vocation is to try as much as within my power under the Holy Spirit to make us beautiful and beneficial for the Lord, right? So... It's, it's all that, a teacher doing that with their students or as school gets ready to get started again or whatever, or a, a, a realtor 
working to make a beautiful home to sell, something beautiful and beneficial for a family. Just think of your work in that regard, whether it's in the healthcare field or another field. It's all about making something beautiful and beneficial where there wouldn't be if you weren't doing that work. A little later in Genesis 2, divine action is again represented in terms of work when God is described as a craftsman. He says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So here's where he gets his hands dirty and starts to form man out of the stuff that he's made. The word formed is a metaphor for the skilled production of an artifact, especially related to a potter's proficiency in shaping clay. So just again and again, we see God's wisdom displayed here. It's not only in creation that God works, but Jesus told the Jews, my father is always working, right? To this very day, and I too am working. We would expect the son to say that if he's the son of God. This points to God's continuing supervision and control of creation and his works of providence, as well as his redemptive activities, which are known as his works or deed. So the point is, God's not just at work in creation and then he rests forever, right? He rests as a symbol of the completion of his work. But nevertheless, he continues working by upholding the universe he has made and by saving his people in the midst of his world. So God's still at work in providence and in salvation, working out his plan in the world. What is more is we must remember that Jesus himself worked. He was a carpenter until the age of 30. In fact, Mark 6, 3 says, isn't that the carpenter? I mean, that's how they identified him. They identified him because that's what they saw him doing the most. He was working in his shop. So they would see him as a carpenter. Yeah, that's a guy who builds stuff and works around town. And so it was an ordinary occupation. But not on that account was it rejected by the Savior. Jesus dignified all work by taking on the form of a carpenter and therefore made it noble and honest toil. So sometimes we can, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, sometimes we can begin to imbibe some of the the worldly thinking of our age. Like, yeah, uh, uh, work that you got to go to college for, that's real work. Or work that you don't have to go to college for, that's real work. But we can create this kind of bifurcation between blue collar and white collar, right? We have that in our, in our culture. But that's a cultural imposition that we need to be aware of that doesn't shape our thinking the way the Bible does. So it's, not, it's fine to identify things like that. But, but if we start to di- say, well, what's really important is kind of, you know, the white collar work. That's the real important work. The blue, or the blue collar work, that's the really... Whereas, no, if it's work and it's done according to God's plan, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, it's good work, it's beneficial work, it's beautiful work, then it's honest work, and it's worthy of dignity, and it's worthy of being exalted. Because Jesus, although he was a clergyman, white collar, he was also blue collar. He was a carpenter, and Paul was the same, tent maker, but also a missionary. So it's against that background that the Christian view of work has to be formulated. It's not demeaning. It's not to be despised. It's inherently good in that it is modeled on what God himself does. I want to read to you just a brief, um, brief account from a book called The Apostolic Constitutions. That sounds pretty strange. You didn't know that the apostles wrote a constitution, did you? Well, that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to a, a book that was influenced by the teaching of the apostles. The apostles didn't write it. It was some early church fathers that wrote it, but it was written around 375. And it was a handbook that was written for churches and young Christians to learn how to live as Christians in, in the society they were living in. And here's just a, 
a particularly good quote about work. They put this in the manual to help train churches and pastors how to think about work and teach their people to do the same. It says, mind your business with all becoming seriousness. That is, be serious about your work. So that you may always have sufficient means to support yourself and those that are needy and not burden the church of God. For we ourselves, beside our attention to the word of the gospel, do not neglect our inferior employments. For some of us are fishermen, some tent makers, some husbandmen, gardeners, that we may never be idle. So says Solomon somewhere, go to the ant, you sluggard. Don't you like the way they quote the Bible? They're doing it like the Bible does. Says it somewhere. But if anyone does not work, let him not eat. For the Lord our God hates the slothful. For no one of those who are dedicated to God ought to be idle. So there you see, even in the early centuries of the church, um, this emphasis on teaching the people the importance of work. So there's, there's kind of work displayed in God. Let's talk about work designed for us as the image bearers of God. Second major aspect of the biblical perspective on work comes out in the opening chapters of Genesis as well. It's not only true that God works, but he's made mankind in his image and in his likeness. And it's interesting that the very first thing that we do in being made in God's image and likeness is get told to go to work, right? Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our own image, image of God he created them, male and female, let them have dominion over the earth. So get to work. Make babies and populate the earth and subdue it. So the link between our work and God's work and the fact that the same pattern is to be shared by both is stated most clearly in the fourth commandment. I'm just going to read the part of it that's, a, that's important to our discussion. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. So again, my point is our pattern of work is patterned after God's pattern of work. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And those ideas of work and take care, as I think I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks ago, um, work and take care are the same ideas that God was doing in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, God worked, that is, he created, and then he ordered it. He took care of it. He formed in the first three days and filled in the next three days. So what God is or what God is telling Adam to do here is do what I've done, not create ex nihilo out of nothing. He can't do that. Can't speak things into existence. No matter how many prosperity preachers tell us otherwise, we can't speak our future into existence. But nevertheless, he does say work it and take care of it. Care for it, cultivate it, protect it, watch over it, and cultivate it just like God was doing in creation originally. So the biblical scope of human work is realized when we build Genesis 1.26 into the picture. And I already read this briefly. Make man in our own image, rule over everything. So work is the way in which we carry out the duties imposed on us by the creation covenant. We are stewards of God's resources in the physical world around us, and we're also stewards of our own time and effort in relation to carrying out what is to be done to fulfill the mandate that's given to us. Let me share Josiah Wedgwood's story, and you will—you've not have heard of him, but um, and I hadn't either until I read this week. But I looked up his picture; good-looking guy, got that 1700s uh, look about him. He was uh, born in 1730 and lived to 1795, and um, he was responsible 
for basically, he was a key component in igniting the Industrial Revolution in the sense that he modernized and revolutionized the early modern factory system. So factories were already beginning to, you know, be in place then, and he was already recognizing as a Christian the, the, the complicating factors that factory work would be for believers, or for people in general, and especially in those days as it was just getting going. So he recognized that in order, because factory work was a, was a grind, it was hard, he treated workers with dignity, he expected high standards, but at the same time he advocated for dignity in terms of treatment of workers. The factory produced at an extraordinary level of both quality and quantity. He provided excellent products, jobs for many workers, and financed the anti-slavery movement. His company made and subsidized the price of countless anti-slavery medallions, which were wildly popular way of publicizing the cause. So he not only used his work to benefit his people and, and the economy in general, but also to benefit the, the concerns of God regarding anti-slavery. So um, is, a, is a great model of how to kind of blend the two, um, the two worlds, so to speak, the sacred and the secular. Those aren't you know, huge differences biblically, but anyway. So that's Josiah Wedgwood. Now, um, before we get into the second, uh, second part, talking about a little bit more about how the falls impacted work, anybody want to say any, any comments or thoughts about anything we've seen so far? I know it's familiar ground, God's work, our work, but any, any thoughts that you all have or want to share with us about those two ideas? Anything at all? All right. Anything out of time? Yes, John. One thought, you mentioned it, but it's just beautiful to, to dwell on the fact that God is a God who continues to work. Mm -hmm. So much of the world's perspective of God is he put it in motion and walked away from it. Or just, if it didn't evolve, he started evolution and took his hands away from it. You know, so it's, it's just a good reminder for us to understand theologically that God works and mm -hmm. worked and continues to work. Yeah, that's great. You know, one thought, and Dwayne, I, you may not have an answer to this, but I just wanted to ask from like a history perspective. You know, when I was, I was thinking about John's point, you know, so often we think of God, or maybe not us, but the world, can, you know, God created, then he walked away, and the, deism is that common philosophical idea, right? That God created everything, and then he just kind of built in natural law, and it just kind of operates as he designed it, but he's not really involved in it. Um, I wonder, and you, you can comment on this, I wonder, how did that come to be such a prominent view? I mean, did, um, it, I mean, I'm thinking even in the, even in our early presidents, you know, it was a dominant view, even though it was Christian infused, there was this deistic idea of, of God. Do you have any thoughts on that? Not a lot. Really. Okay. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that it was always an undercurrent because of Greek mythology that the gods were uninvolved and unconcerned. And they were reading the classics like crazy. Right. Yeah. And it, it lapsed over into different movements within Christianity, uh, even especially with Gnosticism, where God is separated and far away from us. Yeah. But I think that's where Christianity was fighting in the early heresies and the against contracelsus and all these books that were being written in the early church saying Christianity is not like that. Our God is personal. And Augustine really, really focused on that. How the current idea of the 
Yeah. Yeah, we can't be clear. I don't think there's any clear. But but I, I would think that because classics were such a huge thing and that was sort of, in, in, especially Greek and Roman works, were imbued and kind of infused with that kind of thinking, I would think that that kind of creeped over. Jim and then Joe. I wonder if um, also just from the sinful desire to be autonomous, I think yeah. many people believe, and even some people claim to be Christians, that... God created everything and then stepped back so that we can completely have our free will, yeah. right? He, so he doesn't decree anything, doesn't get involved. He lets everything take place. In other words, I guess in a way, he totally let us subdue the creation. Yeah. You know, I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to be involved. I yeah. give you everything you need for it to be sustainable. Yeah. yeah. And then you all are in charge completely. And yeah. I, I think there's a lot of people that believe that. They, it's just the autonomy they desire. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And it, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, finish. I was just going to say it helps explain, I think, to some people, too, why bad things happen to good people. Sure. Right? Because if, if somebody murders, nobody, inter, nobody, some people can't accept that God allows that. Mm -hmm. So they explain it by saying, well, he gave everybody that free will, and he stepped back, and that excuses him yeah. in their mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Joe. Right, yeah. And so as far as American Christianity goes, you know, I think that uh, because of that movement, it was so large that yeah, that good point. really was important to a lot of people. Yeah, that was a key component to it, that whole rational basis, anti-supernatural mm -hmm. kind of bent. So, yeah, good point. Yeah, great. Any other thoughts? You have a... Were you just flagging him down? All right. All right, let's uh, move on then to work disrupted. Thanks for those contributions. That was really good. Um, talk about the fall. This is where we live. So this is our present experience of work for the most part. Um, as we know, um, before the fall, work was a, was a pure blessing. It was a great joy. And, it, and here's the good news is that it will be once again one day, right? Um, I, I look forward to the day when... Uh, everything we touch will turn to gold, so to speak. It won't, it won't go, it won't become gravel in our hands or in our mouths as we try to work for, work for the Lord. But that's one of the beauties of the new heavens and the new earth is we will be busy and we will be working and we will be cultivating and creating again and um, in renewed, resurrected bodies and it will be unaffected by the curse. And, but while work is affected by the curse now, it's not a curse, right? So, Work is not the curse. Work is cursed. And I, I think that's important to, to distinguish because um, if we don't, then we end up thinking that work is not part of good, God's good design and that it's not going to remain. But rather, it is part of God's good design. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2. But it's cursed as a result of our fall into sin. Um, the ground is cursed, not work. So the environment in which we work, that is the ground, the earth, is, is hostile to our efforts to subdue it. And the resources for the realization of the creation mandate will no longer be readily or easily available to us to do all that we would want or even desire to do. So work will entail difficulties and frustration in a suboptimal situation like the one in which we find ourselves. Here's what we read in Genesis 3. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. 
and you will eat the plants of the field. Notice, I I love that tack on. You will eat the plants of the field. You will. This is not famine. It's not though what you do is just useless, right? And I think sometimes we can feel that way. Oh, my work's useless. Doesn't do any good. That's not true. It's not true. You will eat the plants of the field, he says to Adam. It will be beneficial. It will bear some fruit, but it will be hard. Painful toil, he says. Thorns and thistles. Not absence of meaning or absence of value. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So there's the curse. It's the painful toil. It's the thorns. It's the sweat until you return to the ground. For, for from it you were taken, for dust you, were, you are, and to dust you will return. So just notice here, it's the painful toil, it's the sweat, it's the difficulty of work that, that is part of the curse. And um, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good reminder to us. But the difficulty shouldn't so discourage us to think that our work isn't good or beneficial. And I think that's what God's trying to do here with Adam is saying, you're still going to do what I've called you to do, but it's going to be fraught with challenges. Despite the changes which have been divinely imposed due to sin, there still remains the command given by God to work, even though now it will no longer be a pleasure and a delight, but a burden. So it is a pleasure, it is a delight, but it's also a burden. Someone has expressed it by saying that Adam, having been a gardener, now becomes a farmer. Right? It's a little bit more challenging as a farmer than as a gardener. As a gardener, he was watching things just grow in front of him, and now he's got to work the ground. His activity is no longer to be essentially an essentially enjoyable pursuit, but one in which he has to strive against forces that impede and seek to thwart him. But, and this is why we get the testimony of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving for which he labors under the sun? All his days, are his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Now, is Solomon painting an overly pessimistic view of work? I don't think so, because you'll notice what he says a few chapters later. The, the fall means that work is not always inherently rewarding, and that's what Paul Solomon says there. But he doesn't argue that we should stop working, because Ecclesiastes 3 says there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that's his lot. So... What is it, Solomon? Are we supposed to enjoy our work or will we not enjoy our work? Yes. (laughs) That's the philosophical dilemma we're in. And that's the raw honesty that Solomon gives us in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, it feels this way that I'm striving for meaningless things. It's pain and grief. And even when I go to sleep at night, I keep thinking about work. Ever been there? We all have. But Ecclesiastes doesn't say stop working. Cyrus McCormick is a good example here. He lived in 1809 to 1884. I want to read his story briefly to you. You'll know, you'll know an organization he founded if you don't already. You'll know the organization when I get to it. He was an American inventor and businessman whose vision was to invent a, machi- a machine which would help eliminate world hunger. He founded a harvesting machine company which enabled vastly increased productivity. By 1850, it could truly be said that McCormick brings bread to the mouths of the poor. 
This was done by liberating laborers from mindless toil and by enhancing human productivity through machines. In 1878, the French government awarded McCormick a national honor, saying that he'd done more for agriculture than anyone else alive. McCormick was a radically innovative entrepreneur who ended up making around $10 million, and that's in 1800s money. Profits were saved and reinvested in the company or else given to Christian and philanthropic work. In 1869, for example, he gave $10,000 to help the American evangelist Dwight Moody start the Young Men Christians Association, known as the YMCA. Um, McCormick was a devout Presbyterian who exemplified self-denial, sobriety, thriftiness, efficiency, and morality. He made a fortune, but much of it was given to kingdom purposes. He helped feed people on earth, but also laid up treasure in heaven. And after his death, his widow Nettie continued his Christian and charitable services. She donated $8 million, which would be over $160 million today, to hospitals, disaster and relief agencies, churches, youth activities, and educational institutions. So there you have one of God's righteous rich. Work discovered. Let's talk um, a few ways about how Christ's work impacts our work. I want to talk about, first of all, work in God's sight. I want to think about the way the New Testament impacts our view of work. Um, In the medieval Roman Catholic world, um, there were separate spheres, right? There was the sphere of grace, which was the church and all that it did. And there was the sphere of nature, which was all the common life of humanity. And um, the spiritual components of the life of the church, like contemplation and devotion, were the ways that we sought God. And the other ways, I guess, were the ways that were inferior to that. At best, though, ordinary labor was just a necessary evil to enable us to live a spiritual life. There was a two-worlds mentality, which kept Christian standards from permeating every aspect of life. The truly religious withdrew from ordinary life into monasteries or nunneries and devoted themselves to work there, right? Because we know monasteries and nunneries in the, in the medieval age, or Middle Ages were really productive places. They did lots of things. But one of the things the Reformation brought coming out of that medieval way of thinking according to Roman Catholicism and a, and a closer attention to Scripture was again emphasizing that all of life is to be lived before the face of God and the ordinary activities of life ought to be acts that we devote to him as well and are done in obedience to him. So in this way, all of life becomes quorum deo, the Latin phrase for before the face of God. So since it's set apart for God's service by God's people, 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whether you eat or drink, that's pretty normal stuff. Things we do at least three times a day, probably more drinking than that. But do it all for the glory of God. The most random, inconsequential thing. Well, pretty consequential things for eating and drinking if you don't do that. But nevertheless, just unimportant, we think, just ordinary things. What can be more ordinary than eating and drinking? And whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, shows that every activity in life should be motivated by a desire to please the Lord. Paul saw all of his life as lived to Christ. He said to live as Christ, right? But to live as Christ also included being a tent maker. That was part of to living as Christ. Remaining a tent maker didn't contradict living as Christ. It was part of it. He earned his livelihood, wasn't a burden to others. And so he acted in line with his own advice. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So we should not adopt the outlook prevalent in our culture of pigeonholing people according to the status of according to their employment. All legitimate occupations are worthy. 
They provide opportunities for extending help to others. In fact, this is, I believe, one of the primary ways we fulfill our responsibility to love our neighbor as ourself is by engaging in meaningful work that benefits people. We read in Ephesians 4.28, he's been stealing, talking about the pre-Ephesian convert who had just been converted into Christianity from a life of theft. He's been deal- he has been stealing, must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So again, the work isn't just to provide for yourself, although that's biblical, but also to provide for others through what you do. And the only requirement is that it be useful. It has to be useful work. So we're not talking about going out and you know, starting a house of prostitution or something like that. It's not useful work, right? But something that would be useful to society, that would be beneficial to our neighbors. There's also the testimony provided by Industrious Lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So it's important for the testimony of the church that we have an industrious Protestant work ethic, right? Although Protestant should just be Christian, biblical as well. So we work in God's sight. We work under God's lordship, we work for God's glory. But we also work as God's servant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now you might conclude from this that Paul's only thinking about spiritual, religious, church-related things. Those are the things that God divinely calls us to, right? He doesn't call us to ordinary vocations. But what does Paul say later in 1 Corinthians? Well, that idea that he had that, we, that, that God only calls people to spiritual, religious, or church-related tax, ta- tasks persisted for centuries, but it was turned on its head by the Reformation when it was emphasized that God has arranged society so that every individual may exercise the gifts given to him or her in a way that glorifies God and furthers his purposes. And this is what Paul's talking about when we get to 1 Corinthians 7 where he says, nevertheless, each one should retain the place, and he's talking about they are single or married, retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. A little later, he writes, each one should remain in the situation or the calling which he has when God called him. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged. You are called to the life you live. right? You are called to that life by God himself. Just as much as God called Paul to be an apostle. Same word, same idea. Now, granted, I'm sure you weren't called into your work by being struck blind and being told to go to the Gentiles, right? There were some unique elements to that apostolic calling, but it was a calling, and the calling is the same. The Lord calls us to our lives and to our work, whether it's spiritual or what we might deem it spiritual, or what we might call unspiritual, or normal, or regular. Um, it's, it's all under the calling of God. Each is called by a divine summons out of spiritual darkness. That's, of course, conversion into the light of the kingdom of God. But God also mentions a calling which does not refer to that new spiritual standing before God, but to our ongoing earthly existence. So I want you to be encouraged that you are called 
by God to where you are. Now, of course, Paul labors in 1 Corinthians 7 to not so fix people in that mindset to think that they could never change. Or, well, if I'm called to this, why would I ever change? He, we have the freedom with it, under God's providence to, to, to make choices in light of that calling. And he specifically talks in 1 Corinthians 7, were you a slave when called? Remain there. But if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, be free. But wait, I'm called to be a slave. No, you're not called to be a slave. You are called in slavery. You are called to belong to God while you're in slavery. You're not called to be a slave. But if you're able to get out and be free, be free. See, so you see the, the wisdom that Paul is operating under talking about calling. He's not so emphasizing the divine aspect as to neglect the human agency in the whole decision. And the same applies to us in our work. While we're called, while you're called right now to whatever sphere of service you're in, that doesn't mean that you can't make a switch sometime or change and do something else. It's, of course, many of us will, all of us, if we live long enough, will go through various stages and differences of calling and take different jobs and responsibilities through the course of our lives. If our work is something to which God has called us then, that should affect and make all the difference in the world to our attitude towards our work. And in the context of faith and obedience, it becomes a great motivator and sustainer in life, doesn't it? When all, is, when all those days where you just feel like this is pain and toil, this is just anxiety producing, this is, oh, give me a beach for a year. You know, you're just feeling, you're feeling the thorns so a lot, and you would feel the thorns on the beach too. Imagine it was getting really hot out there. But you can remember, no, God has called me. God has called me. This is, there's a divine purpose behind this. So even when the task is monotonous, if it needs to be done, and if it's done for him, that task is transformed. Whatever you do, Colossians 3, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. I love that. Jesus pays his workers. Jesus pays his workers. You will be paid. Now it's going in a great investment account that is building year by year by year by year, and you're going to get a big balloon payment at the end. But it's, and you get many blessings in this life too, but the Lord is going to pay you for your work. And that's ordinary work. That's not just your evangelism, okay? That's, that's your whole work. That's whatever you do. That's everything you're working with all your heart at right now. As you work for the Lord, you know that you're going to receive an inheritance. Do you know? Do you know? That's the question. That's the impact here. Say, I know. Do you know? Or do you just know? Because if you know deep down, that will change your perspective on work. If you just know it, you'll be grumpy. But if you know it deep down in your bones and that truth has gotten into your marrow, it will affect the way you serve the Lord Jesus. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Now, what possible circumstance could you find yourself in that would be more difficult than that? You say, well, New Testament slavery wasn't like chattel slavery. Yes, absolutely. But it's still slavery. You still don't get an inheritance. I mean, unless the family's op voluntarily obligated or uh, 
obligated themselves to take care of you and your family. But notice here, he tells the slaves who are living in slavery, obey, do it sincerely, serve Christ there, do the will of God, serve wholeheartedly, and do it for me. Again, Christ's presence transforms our view of work. One last brother to share about. Sorry I didn't get any sisters in here. I didn't, uh, I was, I'm reading, we're all using this little book by Sharon James on how Christianity transformed the world and um, didn't mention any uh, sisters in here this week, but I'm sure we could add to the list many, many sisters who have um, done great work. We shared some of them uh, throughout the class. John Lang, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, 1879-1978, born in Carlisle, England. John's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had all been in the construction business. The family were devout members of the Brethren Assembly. That's Plymouth Brethren. That's John, Jim Elliott and other people. And John Hogue came out of the Plymouth Brethren. John professed conversion when he was seven years old and left school age 14. Although his father owned the business, he started at the bottom as an apprentice where he had to work long hours and harsh conditions along all the, with all the other construction workers. Later, he began managing the company and he began understanding the working conditions of the people there. He never went to university but taught himself in his spare time at 19, he was given the huge responsibility of supervising the building of the first power station in the northwest of England. At 29 years old, John took over the management of the family business, and during the Second World War, although then he was 65 years of age, he devoted himself and the company's resources to the war effort. After the war, Lang's major projects included the building of the first motorway in Britain and the repair of war damage, the war-damaged Coventry Cathedral. Lang always put God first, and he retained the basic standard of living he'd started out with. By 1940, he was giving away equivalent of about $1 million a year. He plowed immense sums into student Christian work. He brought the United Christian Coalition Fellowship uh, to the London headquarters, as well as the Christian Union base in Oxford. When he died in 1978, although he had presided over a multi-million dollar company, his personal estate was valued at just a little over 371 pounds. So figure that into, I'm sure that's not much difference than American currency. So he, he, he knew he couldn't lay up, he laid up all the treasure in heaven he could. Uh, Lang dismissed lazy and incompetent workers, but was generous if there was genuine hardship. He introduced new practices such as holiday pay and a pension scheme at a time when working conditions in the building industry were often terrible. Alongside running the business, he was an elder in his brethren assembly, ran a men's Bible study group, and enjoyed doing occasional open-air preaching. He went on such crusades and did such open-air preaching until he was 70. So, again, you see a, a brother who strived to do his work in a way that built up his neighbor and used it for the furthering of the gospel. So I want to conclude with this reminder. The key to Christian living and working is conscious dedication to the Lord as the one whom we serve and the one whose approval we crave. The job may be on earth, but if it's done to the Lord, earthly endeavor becomes directly linked to heaven realities. There's a promise of a heavenly reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. And in the meantime, let him who serves, let him who works, we could say 1 Peter 4.11, do so in the strength that God supplies. So God, even now, he doesn't say, all right, go to work. I'll catch up with you at the end. He provides all along the way with the strength that we need for each day. There's always man on the ground, and he will provide all the way home. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to dive in again to this topic of work, discuss it from a biblical perspective, but also see your hand at work through your people down through the centuries. Would you bless us in our work? Would you help us to do it as unto the Lord in your sight as your servants for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.